0: This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is Part 2 of 5 of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of the Antithesis. So that brings us to the subject of the church. Tonight's subject is the antithesis as it comes to manifestation in the church. I think this is a crucially important subject and it's a good thing that we talk about this in the second speech. There is a certain way in which the church determines for us the nature of the antithesis in our families and in life itself as we live it in the midst of the world. So it's good that we get at this subject first of all. We have to ask ourselves in the first place, what do we mean when we talk about the church? What are we saying? What does the Bible say about the church and how does the Bible relate the church to our antithetical walk. Not going to go into the doctrine of the church tonight. I think you're all acquainted with the fact that in Reformed theology, it has been customary to distinguish between the church as organism and the church as institute. Church as organism and institute. The Bible uses the word church in both uh, senses and, in fact, the Bible itself doesn't make any effort to distinguish between the two. You will find passages in Scripture, for example, where both senses are used almost within one sentence and surely within one thought. Nevertheless, these are the characteristics of the organism. The organism of the church is the body of Christ. That's why it's called organism, because the church and Christ constitute one organic unity. The life of Christ is the life of the church. The organism of the church is composed only of elect. There are no reprobate in the organism of the church. There cannot be because election means God from all eternity chose unto himself a church in Christ and chose individually each one who is to belong to that organism. The organism of the church is invisible. You can't say anywhere here in the world this is the organism of the church. That's impossible to say. The organism of the church is invisible because it looks at the church from the viewpoint of the inner life of the spirit in the hearts of the people of God. And you cannot see that. There may be hypocrites in the church. There may be people in the church of whom you think that they are eminently pious, eminently faithful members of the church but who nevertheless lack the spirit and are unregenerate and do not belong to the organism of the church the institute of the church on the other hand is the church manifested in the world it's an organization from a certain point of view it's a worldly organization if i i don't mean in the moral sense of the word but I mean an organization that is found in the world. That means it's an organization that is in many respects like any other organization you will find in the world. It has, for example, a constitution. The constitution, if I may put it that way, is. The whole of sacred scripture, more particularly the Sermon on the Mount, which is often called the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven. It has officers. Officers being the three offices in the church of minister, elder, and deacon. In addition to offices, it has a particular reason for existence. A purpose. And that purpose for its existence is, if I may put it as briefly and concisely as possible, just this, no more, no less, the preaching of the gospel. That's the reason for its existence than which it has no other purpose for being created. And finally, it has membership rules. That is, you can go to the consistory and you can find out who are members of the Church Institute. And you will find on those membership rolls, according, and here we come upon, uh, come to the point where the idea of the Church touches the idea of the covenant. You will find on those membership rolls, believers and their children. And let's be sure about that right away because that has some importance for the things I'm going to say tonight. The children's names are on the membership rolls of the church. They're on the membership rolls, not because they happen to be baptized, not because they happen to be of a family where the parents are believers, but because they are themselves members of the church. The Heidelberg Catechism in dealing with the question of the baptism of infants asks, why must infants be baptized? Because they as well as adults are incorporated in and members of the covenant and church of God. That means that they are members of the church, not by virtue of baptism but by virtue of being born of believers. Baptism is the sign and seal that they are a part of the church, not a sign and seal that from the moment of baptism, they are incorporated into the church and made members. We sometimes talk about baptized members, Really, in a way, that's a a term that is misleading, to say the least. We must get that straight in our minds. Children are not members because they're baptized. They're baptized because they are members. Their names are on the membership rules of the church, whether they are baptized or not, although, of course, they must be according to the command of Christ. That's the difference between the organism and the institute. And I'd like to have you keep that in mind because it's sort of the the background of what I have to say tonight. Now with regard to the church, the church is the one institution in the world which is not a part of the natural order of things. Every other institution in the world The institution of marriage the institution of government the institution of the shop are all institutions which go back all the way to the creation and belong to the creation ordinance and are governed and regulated by the ordinances that god embedded in the creation at the moment when he made the world or more particularly at the moment when he created man and woman and set them in the position he did in the midst of his creation. Those institutions of society, therefore, are directly traceable to the moment of creation. Not the church. The church is an anomaly. The church is otherworldly. The church doesn't belong to the ordinary nature of things. The church really, essentially, doesn't fit in the world. Its presence in the world is a kind of an intrusion, a kind of an effort, if you take this in the right sense of the word for the moment, To put a piece in a puzzle that doesn't fit, it belongs to another puzzle. You're working maybe on a puzzle that has, as it's seen, the Battle of Gettysburg. And you're trying to get into that puzzle, a piece which you have in your hands, which is a piece of a puzzle that belongs to a painting, say, of Monet. And you can't get it in. And because you can't find a place for it, you just pop it down somewhere and hope that it all works. That's the kind of a thing the church is. The church, in other words, is foreign or alien to this world and to the history of this world. That's because of the fact that the church has its origin not in the creation ordinance, But in heaven, the church is, if I may put it that way, a heavenly and divine invasion on the part of heavenly forces of this earthly creation. It's for that reason that the church is so despised, so hated. When it comes right down to it, The world is frightened by the Church. It can't account for the Church. It can't account for its perpetual existence from almost the moment of the fall. It can't account for its presence. It doesn't fit. It's always a contradiction of everything this world is all about. a contradiction of all that wicked men want to make it. God, as it were, with heavenly powers, and if I may put it that way, through the instrumentality of heavenly creatures, angels, invades this creation and establishes the church as a foreign army, in the enemy's land. That's the nature of the church. Very, very interesting. That invasion takes place under the leadership of Christ himself, the captain of our salvation, as he is called in Hebrews 2, verse 10. The captain of our salvation who invaded this world through his incarnation and did so as the eternal Son of God who establishes his army in the strangest way you ever saw an army established. He doesn't as was apparent already when he rode into Jerusalem as the conquering king, but rode on a donkey of all things with a ragtag band of disciples he rode to victory by suffering and dying whoever heard of that ever heard of an institution established a kingdom established a foreign army successful in its invasion of a foreign land by the death of the general, of the commander-in-chief. Who ever heard of that? Nevertheless, that was how the invasion really gained its power. And that is how the invasion became successful. Because of Christ's perfect suffering and death in obedience to God, and his powerful resurrection from the dead, Christ established the church as an invading army. And what was true of Christ, interestingly enough, is true of his soldiers too. His soldiers fight with weapons that are totally foreign to the world. His soldiers don't fight, even though some so-called evangelical Christians claim this with the weapons of rifles and bombs and tanks and batteries of cannon. His soldiers fight by preaching the gospel. That's how they fight. That's the symbolism of the white horse in Revelation 6. The white horse that runs through history, the white horse that is the symbol of victory The white horse that goes on conquering and to conquer. That's the church's calling to preach the gospel. And just as with the captain of their salvation, their victory lies in suffering and in death. Frequently the death of martyrdom. I think that that's worth some emphasis. I had a letter a week or two ago from someone who was defending the remarriage of divorced people while the divorced spouse was still alive. The major argument was simply this. If the church is really to be church, the church has got to take pity on these suffering souls that are deprived suddenly of the joys of marriage because of the sin of their spouse and who are sentenced by the sin of their spouse to a life of loneliness, to a life that is tragic in the extreme, to a life in which they can no longer attain fulfillment to a life that is just plain suffering. And the church, if it is charitable and sympathetic and understands the plight of the suffering people of God, would never, never allow anyone to have to endure such pain and hardship. Now, my answer to that question is simply this. If any man would be my disciple, let him take up his cross, Deny himself and follow me. That's discipleship. The characteristic of those who are soldiers in the army of Christ, and I say this sort of by way of parentheses because it bothers me no end. The characteristic of those who are soldiers of the cross of Christ is this they suffer. They suffer. There is no promise in the scriptures anywhere of a life of ease. Of a life of happiness according to the standards of the world. A Christian may never, never say, well, we have a right to be happy, do we not? The answer to that question is, no, you don't. You don't have a right to be happy as a depraved, depraved person. You have a right only to hell. You don't even have a right to be happy as a child of God, except in the true and fundamental and gloriously wonderful sense of happiness in the consciousness of God's favor. The soldiers who follow the captain of their salvation gain the victory through suffering and death. There is good reason, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but there is good reason why our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper and our form for the administration of Holy Baptism both mention in unmistakable terms that we are called upon to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. Both forms recognize the fact that the life of a Christian if he is to gain the victory in the world, is a life of cross-bearing. How often we forget that, and how often because we forget that, we forget, after all, in this world, what the antithesis is all about. But that's sort of by way of antithesis, uh, by way of parentheses. That this is the kind of a thing the church is. It's so. St- startlingly different from anything the world knows or understands, that I say again, the world can't figure it out. It's too alien, it's too foreign, it's too strange. And so the best way to get rid of something you don't understand is to destroy it. C.S. Lewis says somewhere in his, uh, in his Science Trilogy, I think that it's probably in the first, first book out of the Silent Planet, that if it ever were possible for man to travel to other parts of the universe, to other bodies in the universe, And if he would find there alien creatures, they would be so different from him that he would not be able to understand them. And the first thing he would do is kill them. We don't know what they're like. We don't know, we can't understand what they're doing. They speak a different language. They live differently than we. What are we gonna do about it? Kill them. And so that's the attitude which the church takes, the world takes towards the church. Because of that alien character of the church, because it is an institution created by God by a divine invasion from heaven, the church is more heavenly than it is earthly. It's here in the world, but its fundamental characteristics are heavenly. The church has, if I may put it that way, the smell of heaven about it an aroma that you won't find anywhere in this earthly creation. The church shines with a light that is ethereal, blinding, dazzling, that can't be explained in terms of physics, in terms of how you explain the light that comes from the sun. The church is composed of a number of people who, as members of the church, live the kind of lives that are in every respect a condemnation of everything the wicked world stands for. Not only by their speech, but in the way they live. And the world cannot tolerate that sort of a thing. But that constitutes the church as an antithetical body in the world. I must get on. In the second place, that church is... And I'm not real fond of this term, but I've never been able to find a better one. Try as I might. The church is a covenant... Community. I don't like that word community. And yet it expresses precisely what the church is all about. It's a covenant community. And here, here is where you find the relationship between the truth of God's covenant and the antithesis. It is a covenant community because the church is composed of, Of God's covenant people now that means that in a unique way in a way unique to the church the church stands related to God's covenant here in the world and forever into all eternity in heaven and I think we ought to see what that relationship is in the first place in the church in a unique sense of the word as is true of no other institution god dwells in covenant fellowship with his people here in the world i mean in heaven that will be perfected when the tabernacle of god is with men and god is our god and we are his people and all are without sin but here in the world as long as the church is here There is a unique way in which God has fellowship with his people in the community of the church. And that's on the worship services on the Lord's Day. There is no way in all the world that God speaks through Christ so directly and, if I may put it that way, so immediately, as he speaks through the preaching of the gospel in the established church, when the church goes about her business, her only business, of preaching the gospel. And in a unique way, in the communion of the the church, gathered on the Lord's Day, singing, praying, listening to God speak through the preaching, the church speaks to God. There's a holy conversation going on A magnificent conversation, sometimes a very spirited conversation, sometimes a very humbling conversation, sometimes a conversation in which thunder from heaven reverberates in the walls of the congregation, sometimes a conversation which is quiet and peaceful and serene and infinitely comforting but it's a conversation in a most direct way between God and his people, which is, as you know, the essence of covenant fellowship. If you ask, what is the essence of covenant fellowship? The answer is conversation. That's true between a man and his his wife. It's true between parents and children. It's true between saints in the communion of the saints. Without conversation, there is no communion. And therefore, the church occupies a kind of a position of primacy in the life of the Christian. In the second place, the relation between the church and the covenant is so close because it is when the church carries on her one task, That is assigned her by Christ. That the church is given the privilege and calling of being the instrument through which God gathers his covenant people from the nations of the earth. And from the lines of believers. Only the church can do that. And the church does that through its official ministry of the word. I'm not going to get into that question of the official ministry, but only one who preaches, called by the church and therefore by Christ, is the one who preaches that word, which has that awesome power to gather from the nations the covenant people of God and bring them into the fellowship of the covenant. Furthermore, and in the third place, the relation between the church and God's covenant is that, and I use the figure of an army again, the worship services on the Lord's day are a kind of an R&R, which is granted to soldiers who are on the front lines of battle in a war. Rest, and recuperation. A soldier can't be on the front lines all the time. The worship services are that sort of a thing. Only they are that sort of a thing, not just simply because you can come to church and find a little peace and quietness and sit back and slump in your pew and take 40 winks. The story is told of Stonewall Jackson, great general that he was and professed Calvinist that although he was a faithful member of a Presbyterian church, if he went to church at all, he went because that was the only place he could find enough quiet to get some sleep. And so he used the worship services to catch up on sleep. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Some biographer claims it is. Not that way, but because of the fact that the worship services are the kind of R&R for the soldiers of the cross who march under the banners of Christ to receive once again the spiritual strength which they need to represent God's covenant in the world. It is almost as if after the week is over and Saturday comes to an end, The soldiers of the cross are battle-weary and staggering under the fierce attacks of the enemy and the ferocity of the battle which they are called to fight. And they stagger, stumbling into God's house. And there God comes to them with that only true bread that can feed their souls and with streams of living water that flow from the throne of God so that their strength is renewed as the strength of an eagle and they mount up again in this vigor of youth to go forth once more to the battle. It's the oasis in the wilderness, in the battlefield of this present world where God's covenant people receive the strength they need to continue the fight. That makes the worship services extraordinarily important. Continuing the fight as God's covenant people, they manifest the antithesis. Now the worship services in the church, and that brings me to a more practical aspect of this, is accomplished, when the people of God belong to what Article 28 of the Belgian Confession calls the true church. When we talk about the antithesis in the church, then we must talk about the antithesis that comes to expression in the church itself. First of all, there are a couple of uh, introductory remarks I want to make to what I have to say at this point, and that is in the first place. The antithesis is it manifests itself in the world is an antithesis of light against the background of darkness. When the scriptures define darkness and light, the scriptures define darkness and light not only in terms of evil deeds and good deeds but in terms of the truth versus the lie the truth is light the lie is darkness that's clear from innumerable passages in scripture including that notable one in john 1. Now, that's because of the fact that God is light because in him is truth, with a capital T. That truth that is in God is the triune God, this standard canon reality, eternal reality of truth, is revealed always only in Christ. Because of that, Christ himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That order is important. What he means is this, I am the way of salvation, the way to God, the way to glory and light in heaven, because I am the truth. And because I am the way and the truth, I am the life as well. The life of fellowship with God. When, therefore, the soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ fight in this world, in the cause of the captain of their salvation, they fight not only for holiness, and purity, but for truth. And that's where our attention needs to be concentrated tonight. I'm not saying that they don't fight for holiness and righteousness within the church as well, because sin is always present. But the primary antithesis in the church is between the truth and the lie. And now I'm not talking about the Protestant Reformed Churches as a denomination, although what I have to say is applicable to them too, but I'm talking about the Church Institute, that which calls itself Church in the world, that which claims to be the institution formed by God and the power of the promise Immediately after the fall, that church that is nominated Christendom, there is where the antithesis must be maintained. That involves immediately the question of what Articles 28 and 29 of the Belgian Confession call the true and the false church. And if I can, I want to disabuse you of what I consider to be a wrong and dangerous interpretation of Articles 28 and 29. Dangerous if they are carried to their logical implications as they frequently are not. It is often said that Article 28 and 29 draws a line representing Christendom with the true church at this pole and the false church over here and many denominations, all denominations, somewhere on this line either truer, closer to the true church or closer to the false church, depending on how clearly the signs which are, or the marks which are defined in Article 29 are present. In other words, the language of Article 28, which speaks of the true church and the false church, is changed in the thinking of most people, to truest and falsest. So that you have in between, along this line, churches that are truer or falser. I don't think that's... I don't think that's doing justice to Article 28. Article 28 doesn't use that language. You will not find the comparative and superlative degrees at all used in either Article 28 or Article 29. There is a true church and there is a false church, according to Article 28 and 29. And the true church has certain marks and the false church has certain marks and the two are clearly distinguishable from each other. Now, what is the reason for that? Why does the article use absolute terms instead of terms that are relative? The answer to that question is that the Article 28 recognizes the fact that no church as it appears here in the world is perfect, in the sense that every member of that church is without sin and in the sense that every mark of the church as it appears in the life of the church every Lord's Day is absolutely without any fault. Article 28 doesn't mean that. It means that the church which bears the mark of the true church faithfully preaches the gospel, administers the sacraments according to the command of Christ, exercises Christian discipline. The proof of that lies in in Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. There are two churches, the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Philadelphia, concerning which the Lord has nothing to say by way of reprimand. Does that mean those churches were absolutely perfect? Of course not. You can't have that in a sinful world. If a man, and I've known men like that, if a man is looking for a perfect church, then he's not only being a fool who doesn't understand the realities of life, but he's a Pharisee besides who thinks that only he in this whole swarm of people is without sin the marks of the true church true can be shown so clearly that they can be recognized by anyone who is looking for the true church why does the artic- uh, article use such absolute terms well it uses such absolute terms simply because of the fact that when a denomination begins to lose the marks of the true church, even though it has lost them only in part, that church has principally, essentially become the false church. Now I know that sounds probably a bit harsh to you. Let me explain that by use of a figure. Supposing you know a man, and I'm sure all of you have at one time or another, who is say in his 50s at the peak of health without any known disease, who suddenly is diagnosed with having terminal cancer. There are people like that. They're caught by surprise. They feel well, they notice nothing wrong, but through an examination, It is discovered that they have an inoperable cancer that will kill them. What do you say about that man? Do you say about that man, he is a healthy man? Of course not. He's got cancer. He's going to die. He's got the seeds of death in him. You say, yeah, but look at him. You'd say there was nothing wrong with him. He didn't go to work every day Yet, Yes. But although he bears all the outward appearance of a healthy man, if the doctor's diagnosis is correct, principally he's dead. And that's how Article 28 looks at the church. It doesn't deny the fact that there are churches that do not travel the line from the true church to the false church overnight. It recognizes that. It recognizes that so much that it gives to the true church, the calling to witness to that church that's on the road to apostasy. Calvin and his institutes in talking about this distinction between the true and the false church, doesn't hesitate for a moment to call Rome the false church. And yet at the same time, he says, there are many people of God in the false church, in in the Roman Catholic church. But it is the calling of the church to call them out. That's part of her calling. In the second place, and history substantiates this, once a church begins to lose the marks of the true church, There is no turning back. That's a striking phenomenon, but it is nevertheless true. And I have paid rather close attention to this question in studying over the years the history of the Church of Jesus Christ in the New Dispensation. That's different from the old for obvious reasons. Once a church begins to lose the marks of the true church. There's no turning back. And there's only two ways a church can go. It can go up, growing in the knowledge of the truth, or it can go down. It never stands still. Now that's important, and it's for that reason that Article 28 talks about not the relative terms, true or truest, falser, falsest, but the church which fulfills faithfully the commands of Christ and the church which although it may appear, appear healthy nevertheless has a deadly cancer eating at its vitals that is beyond cure. That's why Article 28 says that it is the obligation of the people of God to join themselves to the true church. That obligation is so critical, so crucial, so fundamental, so urgent, if you will, that... In striking language, Article 28 says, The people of God must do this, though the edict of princes be against it. That is, though you are persecuted for belonging to the true church, though ultimately you are killed for belonging to the true church, this is so fundamental so crucial, that you can't live the life of the antithesis in the world, ultimately, unless you make it your business to become a part of the true church. Nothing may stand in the way of that. Nothing may be an obstacle too great to overcome. That's how the the antithesis is manifested first of all, in the church. And I dare say that anyone who knows he belongs to a false church or is aware of the fact that the church of which he is a part has in large measure or small measure begun to lose the marks of the true church and stays there, cannot live an antithetical life in the midst of the world. And that's because of the fact that's because of the fact that it is in the true church where you have the pure preaching of the word and at the very center of the antithetical life lies the power of the truth of God as it is revealed in Christ There is no antithetical life of holiness and godliness ultimately without an unwavering commitment to the truth. When Luther performed his great reformation work, let me go back a little further because this is illustrated graphically in the two or three centuries preceding the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church in the 14th, 15th, and early part of the 16th centuries was fully aware of the corruption that was present in the the church. The the awful immorality that was present among the clergy. And and you could make a list of, of sins as long as you wanted. And so in desperation because of all the wickedness the church called councils. Councils in which all the bishops and archbishops and clerics and frequently the the secular rulers came together to bring about reform in the church. And although these councils sometimes were high-powered councils with all the dignitaries of the church present, and although they spent weeks and months in efforts to reform the church. They never succeeded one iota. Why? Because they never could understand that the terrible evils in the church were due to false doctrine. The Council of Constance, perhaps the greatest reformatory council in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, other than the Council of Trent, not only instituted all kinds of reforms, but took the great pre-reformer John Huss and burned him at the stake for preaching the gospel of grace. How could reform come out of that? When Luther appeared on the scene, Luther understood it. The radicals in the Lutheran Reformation, particularly the Anabaptists, were forever screaming at Luther, you're not going far enough, you've got to... Come down harder on the life of those to whom you preach. You've got to make your sermons tear at their vitals with all kinds of practical admonitions. You've got to drag them by the power of practical preaching from their swine's trough where they're slurping immorality and drunkenness and gluttony. And Luther's answer to all that was, let me alone, let me preach the word. When the word has its course and takes its course, and people are instructed in the truth, they will follow the way of truth. And their whole life will be a reflection of the truth. He was right. An antithetical walk in the world is possible in a church where the gospel is preached, in purity of truth and the people are instructed in the truth. If I may say so for a moment, and this to my mind has a great deal to do with the preservation of the antithesis in our own churches, we've got to remember that this is what catechism classes are all about. I've heard it said on occasion by people who ought to know better that when young people appear before the elders, to make confession of their faith that the only thing that counts and the only thing in which the elders ought to be interested is in this one question. Do these young people believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is their own personal Savior? I take violent exceptions. If all you want is a confession of a young person that he believes that Jesus Christ is his own Savior, send him to River Bend Baptist around the corner. He can make that confession there. And they'll be glad to receive him and probably rebaptize him. When young people come to the consistory to make confession of faith, they have to be able, all other things being equal, to give an account, a clear, concise, intelligent, articulate account of why they want to make confession of faith in this church and not elsewhere. And so they have to be acquainted with the heritage of the Reformed faith as God has entrusted it to us. The years of their catechism are years in which they are to be taught this. That's why the confessions are so crucially important. The confessions contain that heritage. It's from the time they begin to study doctrine, when they're 11 or 12 years old and they open the Heidelberg Catechism, catechism books for the first time, and they begin that path of learning doctrine. The minister who teaches them if he is a responsible catechete must insist that they use the opportunities which they now have to check for themselves whether the doctrines of the church of which they are a member are faithful to Scripture and the Reformed Confessions. When I'm nine years old and 10 years old, I take my parents' word for it. I take my minister's word for it. The confessions contain what the church of all ages has said is the truth of the word of God. But there comes a time in my life when I have to make confession of faith. And I have to say for myself, the doctrine taught in this church, maintained in the preaching, in faithfulness to the confessions as a part of the heritage of the church of all ages is the truth of the word of god i have to be able to say that for myself that brings a young person the seed of the covenant the one who is going to take your place when the battle's over for you and it's time to lay down your sword and pick up the palm branch of victory beyond the skies He's got to know. I made confession of faith in this church because I believed with all my heart that here the truth of the word of God was taught and because of that this is a covenant community and it is here where I receive the spiritual power to walk an antithetical life. I must begin the antithesis right here. Now, that means all sorts of things. You can see that clearly, of course. That means that urgent, pressing, inescapable obligation to join a true church. Not only for yourself, but for your seed, for your children who must carry on the battle. If you're not, and you're content to stay in a church that's drifting, on the dark, dark road of apostasy. You pay the price. You may say, yes, but I can remain reformed. Maybe, I doubt that. My experience is you can't. But maybe you can. But your children can't. Because you're not part of a covenant community and your children go lost in their generations. That's the tragedy. To express the antithesis in the church is to confess the truth. You have to know it. You have to love it. You have to become convicted of it. So convicted That somewhere, somehow, by the grace of Almighty God, you have come to the conviction. This is the truth. Here I stand. Come what may. That's the antithesis in the church. Sometimes that happens to the people of God gradually sometimes it happens in a flash of insight and a flash of of light that is overwhelmingly brilliant sometimes it happens when you're disputing a point of doctrine with a co-worker in the shop or with someone whom you met in some social situation sometimes it comes in the wee hours of the night when you're sitting alone in the darkness and all of a sudden in your heart there comes such an overwhelming conquering conviction that this is the truth that you say no matter what happens no matter what the future may bring this Is the truth it's that kind of a thing which produces a Luther who in what he later called his tower experience suddenly saw the blazing beauty of the righteousness of the cross of Christ freely and graciously imputed to him by faith alone without the works of the law that's it He himself says it was as if the portals of heaven were opened, and he stood before the blazing light of the truth of God himself. That conviction, that conquering conviction made him stand where he did, come what may. That was characteristic of our fathers' if I may say so, in 1924 when Reverend George Martin Opoff stood in front of Grand Rapids West and was confronted with the demand by the entire denomination, sign the three points. And he said, you can put me in front of a cannon and blow me to bits. I won't sign them. That was not a melodramatic bravado. That was conviction of the truth where he would stand. When Herman Huxema was by classes Grand Rapids East stripped of his office, stripped of his position in the church, Cast out into the streets without support, standing as it were alone, without knowing anything about the future, and without knowing that there would someday be a Protestant Reformed Church. Somewhere, I don't know where, but he had come to the unshakable conviction sovereign and particular grace is the truth of God because it gives all glory to him. Whatever happens, that's where I stand. There's coming a day when you and I are going to have to reveal that same kind of conviction. Now the choices are blurred you can walk with one foot on the sidewalk and another in the gutter and get away with it. To a certain extent, you can serve Christ and you can serve Belial, at least. You can leave the impression as if you can. But the day isn't too far away when the lines are going to be sharp, clear-cut, inescapable. Christ and death or Antichrist, and prosperity and pleasure. The calling of the church is to train her members to make that kind of stand for the truth. They will stand for that no matter what. I remember well, I heard it with my own ears. Reverend Hoeksema say on the floor of Classes East, in the dark days of the controversy in 1953 when the forces of false doctrine were strong and running at a high tide, if I have to stand alone and become a ditch digger, rather than a preacher. I'll do that. But I will not ever confess a conditional covenant. When the time comes to make the choice, it's too late. There has to be that moment somewhere in your life, whether it be alone, in the darkness of the night, or wherever God, by his grace, brings you to it, where that conviction is yours. Thank God for the Protestant Reformed churches where the truth is still maintained. And so, the antithesis in the church means That the church, that the people of God in the church, consciously confess the truth antithetically. What does that mean? That means simply this Confess the truth of the Word of God over against the lie. The light shines over against the darkness. The truth shines over against the lie. I don't have the time of the day for people who in what they claim to be a spirit of graciousness say, well, I believe all right that the truth which the Protestant reformed churches maintain is the purest manifestation of the truth. But there's a lot of truth in a lot of other places and what errors may creep in in other places are perhaps inadvertent and unconscious. And we who must be charitable in understanding of our fellow believers in other denominations must not assume a condemnatory attitude and so on and so on and so on. It's the language of that cursed word of our day. That's the byword and password of the church. Tolerance. Tolerance, 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 tolerance. When Christ wasn't tolerant, when there's a battle to fight, when the enemy is defaming the name of God by false doctrine. And when the devil is using the instrument of false doctrine to eat at the vitals of the church to destroy her confession, is tolerance the order of the day? Does a soldier in a foxhole on the Maginot line in France say there's a lot of good men over there on the other side shooting at us? Shall I go over there and make friends? You'll be killed. When it comes to the questions of the truth, the child of God is intolerant. And then finally this, and then my time is up. Love the church. Everything in your power to seek the welfare of the church. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. For thy friends and neighbors' sake say, peace be unto thee. That's the calling of the people of God. A church that is divided, that squabbles, a church that is intent on making its way of life, bickering, jealousy, torn by jealousy and envy, is a church that is the scorn and derision of all that see it. But a church where peace reigns, where there is unity, where there is profound love for the truth. A church, in short, where the people stand together in the ranks of the battalions of Jesus Christ in the cause of the gospel. That's the church which has the blessing of Christ and is instrumental in gathering the seed of the covenant, the children of the covenant that God has chosen as his own. Love the church. Sacrifice yourself for the church. Make the church a priority in your life. Don't let it be on the periphery. May it be at the center. Teach your children that. Children, everything is secondary to the church. Everything. Then you practice the antithesis in the church, and you are faithful to Christ, the head of the church. Our Heavenly Father, when we consider the matter of the wonderful institution which thy church is, and that thou from all eternity and out of pure unmerited grace hast given us and our children a place in that church, we are overwhelmed. How great is the cause for which we fight. How wonderful are the promises that await those who are faithful. How rich is the inheritance of that glorious reformed heritage entrusted to our care. How noble is the battle in the defense of the faith. How marvelous is thy grace that gives us the victory because we have Christ, the captain of our salvation. May the church be central in our lives. May we love her, seek her good, pray for her constantly, be faithful to her, support her every day, and teach our children Make the church the center of their lives. Bless what we have discussed tonight. Forgive what was wrong. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.